This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Columbia University Press, publisher of the novel Friend. The New York Times calls it a beguiling introduction to the everyday, with none of the rockets and military parades that the words North Korea often bring to mind. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So this week, we have two guests. The first is Olivia Lang with her new collection of pieces called Funny Weather, pieces about artists and about writers and about world crises and very apt. Yes, very, very timely. And then we're speaking with the writer Lucy Ives about a new collection she edited, which brings together the work of the writer, artist, and architect Madeline Ginz. I don't know if I would call that book timely, but it's, it's certainly inspiring. And it, it's nice to look to very, very ambitious, creative thinkers in this moment, maybe, who saw beyond the world as it is and envisioned a different kind of world. Madeline Ginz is definitely that, and um, Lucy is too. Yeah. And so are many of the people that Olivia Lang writes about. So actually, I think that's a very beautiful place to go right into these conversations. Yeah. We are talking to writer Olivia Lang today. She's the author of three works of nonfiction, To the River, The Trip to Echo Spring, and The Lonely City, as well as a novel called Crudo, which came out in 2018. For four years, she was also a regular columnist for Freeze Magazine, and her column was called Funny Weather. Her new book, a collection of essays, shares the title with that column. It's called Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency. The book collects Lang's essays on artists and writers, her Freeze columns, and other pieces she's written over the past 10 years. Thank you so much for joining us, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Just to refer to the subtitle of this book and, you know, talking about art in an emergency and turning to art in a time of crisis and considering our current time of crisis, I'm wondering if there's anything you've been looking at, reading, listening to that's helping you right now or, you know, and in what way, you know, it's helping you if art is meaning anything different to you in the current moment than it usually does? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I was thinking about all kinds of emergencies, but obviously a global pandemic was not one of them. So it's been pretty startling for me and the rest of the world. But yes, it has been a really interesting and troubling test case. And I have found myself doing two things, returning to old works and thinking about them in different ways. So for example, the first thing I did when um, the lockdown started in the UK was to get out Virginia Woolf's diaries and especially the final diary, which she wrote as Britain is entering the war. And it was so interesting to turn back to this document. I know it very well. And it had always seemed like it was a record of a time utterly lost in the past. And yet reading it now in lockdown, it's about rationing, it's about fear, it's about worrying over whether there's going to be food in the shops. All these things suddenly felt immediate. The sense of death pressing in, the sense of the unknown felt immediate in a totally different way. And I think that's always one of the gifts of art is that 
it speaks through time. It communicates to us from different eras in different ways, depending on where we are, where we're situated. And then the other thing which I found cheering and consoling is watching how artists are responding to the crisis in the ways that they can now in this sort of digital universe that we're forced to inhabit 24-7. So seeing how people are both making work in innovative ways, but also how artists are immediately responding to try and support each other. So for example, the photographer Wolfgang Tillmans set up a project very early on in the crisis where he got all sorts of artists to contribute poster images, which he made available for free for any institution that's in trouble to sell via a Kickstarter. So that sort of act of generosity that isn't even about trying to sustain your own community, but is about trying to sustain other people's communities. That feels to me like another power that art has, that it can be a very practical resource, as well as something that's more about how we think and how we feel. Something that I thought was really interesting in this collection is one of the essays that you write deals with a different time in your life when you dealt with emergency in a really different way, where it seemed like you actually just dove straight into it. You were protesting environmental degradation and pollution. And for a while, you lived alone in a hut, essentially in a bender, I think is what it's called, (laughs) in a field. It's interesting because this book is very much about diving into emergency through forms of representation, through cultural artifacts. And in that time in your life, I think you were, you dropped out of school, university. So you're in your 20s. You actually physically went right into the emergency state. Yeah, that's true. So I want to know about the progression. What was it like living within an emergency and really experiencing it bodily? And then now to being more of a critic and thinking about it in a more intellectual way? That is a really good question. I think it goes back even further than my 20s, though. You know, I was raised in a gay household during a very homophobic era in British history and also Mm -hmm. during the AIDS crisis. So I went to my first protest gay pride when I was eight in the early 80s. So that sense of bodies on the streets, bodies as a force that can change the world has really been with me for a very long time. The sense that you can do something to change your reality and that can be practical And in my late teens, I got very involved in environmental activism. So I was living in the pathway of new motorways that were being built in England. And we built tree houses in forests that were about to be cut down. So again, this sense of really physically using our bodies as a way of resisting something. And that kind of life is very intense. And the burnout rate is very high. The sense of despair about what's happening to the climate is something I've been feeling for, you know, a good two decades now. So when I was living in the field on my own, I think I really was having a kind of breakdown. That wasn't a moment of activism. That was a moment of seclusion and grief, I think, that felt very hopeless and very stuck. And that was the point really where I started thinking, I want to be a writer and feeling like art was another kind of tool, another kind of force not just for changing the world, but also for making sense of the world, for learning how to read what was happening and for dreaming up different ways of reality being shaped. So 
with the artists that I'm looking at in Funny Weather, many of them are artist activists, Derek Jarman, David Wonorovich, a lot of the artists of the AIDS era combine both. They're out there, they're doing stuff on the streets, and at the same time, they're making art that is protest art and also art that has many other sort of capacities to it too. So it always feels to me like the two things go hand in hand. They don't feel separate. Yeah, that piece really struck me as well. And I actually remember reading it when it came out and just thinking, oh, I just I'm dying to hear more about this time in your life. It's just so compelling. And I think something about it, too, that's interesting is that so when you lived in the Bender for a spring, you were completely isolated in that there was, you know, a few people around. If you wanted to get in touch with people, you write, you had a pager, but you had to you know, get paged and then go to a payphone miles down the road. Just a true isolation versus the current moment where it's like everyone is isolated, but then just connected. And another theme of the book is, you know, this kind of paranoid reading. You're referencing Kozlowski Sedgwick and talking about literature, but then it's also kind of a paranoid reading of the present, like going Mm -hmm. down these Twitter holes, trying to find the truth, you know? So it seems such a stark difference to me, the like a true isolation versus one that's so much more nebulous. That's so interesting because as soon as you started saying those, the paranoid readings combined with that time, it was a very paranoid moment, the 90s, in terms of activism. People were very paranoid. We might not have had the internet and we were handing out like broadsheets and zines, but they were full of exactly the same kinds of conspiracy theories and speculation. So I think those narratives, there was an obsession with were there police spies, which it turned out later there were. So that sense actually feels like the technology has changed, but it's not really that different in a lot of ways. So for you, when you were living in the tent, that kind of being alone with your thoughts and speculations about the deeper happenings of the police state, you see like a really clear through line to the present for yourself. No, I think there's a clear through line, but it also has just changed unutterably. I mean, the kind of long sustained thinking that was possible at that moment just before the internet was really prevalent. I mean, I don't think I even had an email at that time. I don't think I was, did Google exist? I definitely wasn't Googling things. My information sources were other people or print. That was how I understood the world. And this sense now of the magnificent totality of the internet that you can find out anything and yet often you feel like you're not really finding out very much at all. What you're doing is just reproducing your own anxiety and fear. And as Eve Sedgwick says, finding evidence for what you fear you already know. I think that's something that happens so much on the internet. It's so good for reinforcing ideas, but actually thinking new ideas is something that perhaps it isn't quite so skilled at. Let's talk a little bit about the Sedgwick, because that is something Mm. that you return to. It begins your book, and you return to it in different pieces. The Sedgwick, she sets up a sort of opposite to paranoid reading, which is reparative reading. Could you explain? So, you know, I don't envy you this task. I remember I had to do this in graduate school. I really couldn't. I really couldn't say what she was talking about. But (laughs) would you give listeners an introduction about how you think about these two things? What do you think about paranoid reading or reparative reading? Yeah, of course. So I think what she's saying with paranoid reading is we are all, and this isn't just about how we read books. This is about how we approach the world. We're all trying to make sense of the world at all times. We're all trying to read and handle information. And she says 
there is an approach that is absolutely dominant, which is the paranoid approach, which is trying to forearm ourselves against what we fear. So we're looking for evidence that our deepest anxieties and terrors are true. And we're trying to protect ourselves against the idea that there might be, she calls it a bad surprise, the idea that there might be some catastrophe that we haven't anticipated. And I think you really see this at play in Twitter, that people are looking all the time for what's behind something. I want to make this invisible thing visible and available and understood. And what Eve points out, which I think is really fascinating, is well, hang on a minute, just making these bad realities visible, it doesn't actually stop them. Knowing Mm. everything about, for example, in my country, no deal Brexit, worrying over that for a year, didn't actually arm me in any way against COVID-19 and the reality that I now find myself in. What we're doing is in some way magical thinking when we're doing a paranoid reading, when we're performing a paranoid reading. And what she points out is it's of course, a necessary tool. We must find information. That is something we need to do. But at the same time, it's not the only thing we need to do. So at the very end of this essay, which is a very long essay, and most of it is about paranoid reading, she floats the possibility that there might be another way of doing things. And she calls it reparative reading. And I think what she means by that is that your fundamental aim isn't to protect yourself against the awful future that might be coming. It is to find sustenance and nourishment from the culture that you're in and to build something different. And that to me seems like a very exciting possibility that I think we need to bear in mind in this very, very anxious moment. I wanted to bring up gardening because that, that, (laughs) speaking of sustenance, and also talk about Derek Jarman, who also yeah. reoccurs here a lot. And you have such a beautiful line about his garden that he was tending to paradise. That idea and also the garden as a site of art making really spoke to me. And I wonder if you could talk about both your relationship to gardening and Derek Jarman. Yeah, of course. I feel like he's such a wonderful example of the reparative impulse, the reparative impulse in art making. So he was diagnosed with AIDS in the, he was HIV positive in the late 80s at a time when it was an almost certain death sentence. And he responded to that diagnosis absolutely by carrying on, going on protests. He was in ACT UP, he was doing all of those things, he was on the streets. But at the same time, he moved to this tiny fisherman's cottage on the coast in Dungeness in Kent, south coast of England, right on the shore on this sort of stony beach, the most unpromising surrounds, next to a nuclear power station. I mean, it really is a very bleak place. (laughs) And he's sick. He's facing down death. And what he does is he starts to build an improbable, magical, ferocious garden. You know, this space that is just teeming with ideas. It's got sculpture in it. It's full of plants. There are poppies everywhere. There's valerian. It's this sort of wonderful utopian thing that he does at the same time as bearing witness to death running through his community like wildfire. And that seems to me to be the reparative impulse at work. It outlives him. The garden outlives him. It's still there. You can go to it. 
In fact, another thing that cheered me up during this not very cheery period is that the Art Fund in Britain had been trying to raise the money to save Derek Jarman's garden and house for the nation in perpetuity, and they needed to raise three and a half million, which is an extraordinary amount. And they managed to do that during the campaign finished during lockdown. So the idea that people were willing to give that kind of money in small individual donations, I think that's a kind of testament to how much these things matter to us, how much that sort of symbolic place, which is also a physical, material, actual place, really matters. It means something to people. Yeah. And for yourself, do you still maintain a garden? If you follow me on Instagram, you will know that I maintain a garden with great seriousness. (laughs) It really, it's my, you know, salvation is a big word, but it provides me with a great deal of Sanity. And I think one of the things about gardening is that unlike art making itself, it's not a quest for perfection in the same way. It's always in flux. There isn't a finished product. You're making something, but you're negotiating with reality all the time. You're negotiating with the weather. You're negotiating with insects. You're negotiating with it was too hot. There wasn't enough rain. So that sense of you have a vision, but also you have to collaborate with circumstances feels to me like a very good lesson for any artist to have to have. Some of the essays in this collection are called love letters, or they're grouped as love letters. So some of the people just for listeners who you write love letters to, it's David Bowie, Freddie Mercury, Wolfgang Tillmans. Was there anybody that you want to write a love letter to now? Like in this particular moment? In this particular moment, yeah. I mean, Virginia Woolf has definitely been in my mind a lot lately because I think that you can feel that you know a huge amount about an artist and then as the circumstances change, you see them in a whole different light and something sort of emerges that you hadn't realised before. And I think with Woolf, the thing that has really emerged for me that I hadn't seen before, which perhaps I would like to write a love letter to, is the sense of her almost boundless curiosity. You know, we all know how that last diary ends. We know it ends with her walking into the river with stones in her pocket. But it doesn't feel like that. It feels like it's somebody who is in crisis and is choosing to respond to that crisis by paying very close attention to everything that's happening around them. And not in a neurotic way, but in a amused way, engaged way, sometimes a frightened way. But it fizzes with aliveness and that sense of her sort of really quite naked courage has struck me more this time than any other time that I've read the diary and I've read it many times over a very long period but it feels different to me now so yeah I'm going to write a love letter to Virginia Woolf. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering just as someone who you know writes books where you often are talking about you know many artists at a time and your pieces are filled with references to just many, many different artists, and also someone who's a working journalist, so who is working on deadline. How do you make your journalism, I guess, worthwhile for your larger projects? You know, keeping that balance and, you know, casting a net of characters and having them and just shuffling them about and continuing to engage with their work across different modes. I'm just wondering about that, that balance as someone who has an active freelance career as well as works on larger projects. I think the joy about the journalism is 
you're on deadline and then you finish it and you file and it's done. <laughs> and I'm sort of, I'm half joking, but also I think that really does when I'm like the book that I've just finished now, everybody, which has taken four or five years, it's been a real slog. It's working at a sort of slow mountaineer's pace and to be able to do sprints in between that and feel like I have brought something shorter to completion creates kind of little jets of energy that sort of keep me going. So it's, I don't teach. I know a lot of writers are teachers as well, and that's never worked for me. But journalism is a way that I feel like I can test out ideas, try out possible routes to go down, maybe audition cast members that might come into larger projects, but also just to feel like I'm running two simultaneous clocks and one is a very slow clock and one is much more rapid seems to work quite well for me. I find it quite sustaining. And I think particularly with the freeze columns, that was really a space where I was trying to, so the book that I've just finished, Everybody is about bodies and freedom. And that was a place where I could just start tentatively to touch some of those ideas, to think about things like violence or sexuality, to see, right, Philip Guston, okay, I'm really interested in him, and Mendieta, I'm really interested in her, right, I'm going to move these characters through into the larger project, or try things out and think, well, this hasn't worked, That I did love that person, but I don't have more to say about them, that's kind of as deep as my interest runs. So it is really a ground for experimenting for me, and I think I've been very lucky in having places like Freeze and The Guardian that I've worked for over a very long period of time, and I can say to them, I want to write about this book or I want to write about this artist. And there's been a lot of scope to do that. So, yeah, I've never felt like they pull apart from each other. Speaking about your freeze column, why did you choose, and it shares the same title as your essay collection, the new one, but why did you choose the title Funny Weather? I felt like the weather was getting pretty funny. I mean, in terms of climate change, but also in terms of the political weather, it was the moment, it was the beginning of the refugee crisis, actually. It was before Trump, it was before Brexit. But it felt to me like things were starting to get kind of bumpy, that there was a sort of change in a large climate system had moved in and I wanted to observe it. And nobody liked the title at Freeze. They were all like, sounds a bit like funny papers. What I don't get it, but I was really insistent. I did think the weather was getting funny and I stuck to it and it turned out I was right. The weather got really, really funny. Yeah, it got funnier probably than you thought it was going to get. <laughs> yeah, I'm not liking how funny it is now. <laughs> you know, talking about the uses of art, I was really struck by your column on the Grenfell fire, which I believe took place in 2018 in London. I think it was 2017. In 2017. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're writing about that tragedy briefly and then you turn, you know, you kind of pivot very quickly to this Turner painting. And then from there, you quickly pivot again to the shirtwaist. The Great Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Yeah. In New York. And just to kind of layer images, layer tragedy, basically, so that you don't have to write head on about one thing, but that you kind of gain some traction by closely putting it right next to another. I'm just wondering if you find that helpful and like this panoply of art that you can use in your pieces, in your writing, just that pairing of two things together, if that's really generative for you. What I was doing with those columns was trying to take something that was happening in the world and then try and look at it through the lens of art in various different ways. And there were two things that made that really difficult that column was 700 words. And 
I had to file them well before, you know, it's a print publication. So there was like a two month lag on them. And I found the combination of that, that they were short, but also slow was difficult. I kind of wanted them to be either longer and slow or short and fast, which is part of why I stopped doing it in the end. And I think there's something to be said for the immediacy of that sort of response. And I mean, I was horrified and appalled like everybody when Grenfell happened. But also, I knew about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and I wanted to sort of show that these things happen over and over and they don't happen naturally. They're not accidents. They happen because people will not take regard of the safety of the most vulnerable. That is the thing that continually happens. So really, I think that deserves a much longer essay, but that was the space in which I had to form those ideas. But they're broadsides almost. They're a way of saying look here, this situation is occurring. And here is some material that might help us to think about it. But it really is requiring a lot on the part of the viewer to go away and do thinking as well, because 700 words, you can't do very much thinking in. It's a very tricky length, I think. One of the pieces in this collection, it's called The Future of Loneliness. And it struck me as particularly, let's say relevant. Much (laughs) of the collection is particularly relevant, I think. But in that one, you discuss distance, forms of distance that people have experienced between each other and the new form of distance, which is the internet, which is also a form of closeness. And so there's this kind of push and pull between distance and intimacy. Are you thinking about loneliness and the future of loneliness in a different way now? Yeah, absolutely. At the very beginning of all of this, I had like a spate of maybe 20 or 30 interviews with Spanish magazines because The Lonely City had come out in Spain and Spain has a huge population of people who live alone. And there was suddenly this sense of like, wow, we are living inside a hopper painting. We're living inside this sort of reality of absolute solitude, loneliness and isolation where we are forced to use our computers in in a very different way to the sort of situation that I was describing. I mean, I wrote that essay probably seven years ago. And it feels like we're in a very, very different relationship with the internet right now. And I feel a great deal more gratitude towards it at the same time as maintaining the same sort of cynicism and skepticism about it, because it isn't the same thing as a common space. It does have all sorts of troubling implications in terms of surveillance, in terms of privacy, in terms of who owns what information about us. But at the same time, can you imagine going through this without being able to Zoom with your family or, you know, have all of these ways of having contact? So I've almost feel like I've been a bit humbled by how much of a tool of real need it's been in the same way that people were, I think I write in the essay, people were skeptical about the telephone when it was first invented. But it is a device for dissolving distance and creating connection. But at the same time, any new device that dissolves distance and creates connection also creates new opportunities for connection to fail. And, you know, even really subtle things like people put on Instagram their Zoom party or they're like, I'm Zooming tonight with these five people. And somebody else is like, oh, well, I'm excluded. That potential for the Internet to sort of demonstrate to us states of exclusion, I think, that's very difficult for people to negotiate. And the shame that that creates, the sense of anxiety that creates, especially among young people. I mean, I am sort of given those confessions all the time when I do readings that especially very young readers want to say, the internet makes me feel lonely. And I think it really does. And even in this state where 
it is also the only way that you can be close to people, it still has a potential for making us feel sort of humiliated and cast out. That's always there with it. Well, this is... <laughs> we can't end with the word humiliation and cast out. No, has to be another question. We want to Maybe, um, it. funny. When can we look forward to everybody... I have the feeling that that book has lots of reparative opportunities. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about it and when it will be coming out. Yeah, sure. I have finished it. It's in edits at the moment and it will be out this time next year, May 2021. And I mean, it's in some ways a very dark book. It really is grappling with what it means to be a body and to desire freedom. It's about the great freedom movements of the 20th century, sexual liberation, gay rights, the civil rights movement, and why in some ways they failed and what that means. And it really goes there in terms of what we are up against. And at the same time, I think it does end with a kind of feeling of hope that it's not a fight that is ever finished, but it's a fight that we must at all times continue. And although that sounds kind of like a downer at the same time, that does give me hope that we just have to keep going. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. We've been talking to Olivia Lang. Her new book is called Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with the writer Olivia Lang, whose new book is Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency. We now turn to our conversation about Madeline Ginz with the writer Lucy Ives. We're joined today by the writer Lucy Ives, who has written the introduction and edited a new collection of work by the poet, artist, and architect Madeline Ginz. Ginz is probably best known for the site of Reversible Destiny, which she designed and built with her husband, Shusaku Arakawa in Japan. But this new collection of her work called The Saddest Thing Is That I Have Had to Use Words reveals what a versatile, curious, and transformational artist Gins really was. This book collects previously unpublished material as well as some of Gins' best known work. Lucy Ives, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So Lucy, I, I thought just to start off, you could tell us a little bit more about who Madeline Gins was and how you yourself came to her writing. Sure thing. Madeline, or Gins, maybe to be a little more formal, was a New Yorker, and she was born in the Bronx in 1941, and her family ended up moving to Long Island, and she grew up in a Long Island town, and she went to Barnard, and she studied a variety of different things when she was in college, including physics and philosophy, and I've also heard calligraphy and maybe a little bit of Japanese as well. And she met her partner, Shuzaku Arakawa, who, when he became better known, was just going by his last name, Arakawa, at an art school that used to be a part of the Brooklyn Museum, where he was a teacher. And uh, they got married in the mid-1960s and purchased a building on uh, West Houston Street, which they lived in for um, the rest of their lives. 
And in the late 60s and early 70s, Ginz was primarily a writer. So she was a poet and she was someone who's very interested in the typewriter and producing poetry using a typewriter. Um, this is something that you saw with a lot of people who were interested in the movement in conceptual art that was going on in Soho in that neighborhood at that time. And it was only later in the late 1980s that she and Arakawa began working together. Um, they created an art installation together called the Mechanism of Meaning, which was a combination of sculpture and painting that was sort of about challenging the viewer's relationship to language and space. And out of that came um, a much more elaborate architectural project, um, which eventually came to be called Reversible Destiny. And the goal of this project was to create structures that would essentially end human mortality. So allow people who lived within them not to die or to not die, as Gins and Arakawa would have said. And they also collaborated together on a number of um, architectural and theoretical writings. But this book, uh, the saddest thing is that I've had to use words, is, is really primarily about um, uh, Madeline Gins as a singular author and uh, her as a poet and a, a writer of sentences and, and experimental novels. Mm -hmm. And tell us how you came to her. Oh, yeah, sure. So this happened when I was um, studying poetry at the University of Iowa, and I happened to be in the bookstore that's in Iowa City, which is called Prairie Lights. And um, I think it was probably before a reading or something like that. And I was looking through the art book section, and I saw this this big hardcover book that had uh, – you know, Arakawa slash Gins on the spine. And I, I took it out of the shelf and I was like, what is this? Like looking through it, this was a catalog from a 1997 show at the Guggenheim that was primarily about their architectural practice. And I was very curious about, you know, what was contained in there, these very strange looking to me uh, landscapes and very colorful rooms that uh, issued things like right angles and walls and, uh, you know, sort of differentiation between ceiling and floor. And I guess I kind of like, after this, I was very confused and I went and looked them up at the library and saw that um, Gins had written a number of books of, I guess, what was probably classified as poetry. And then, so I went and, and had a look at them and I think I probably that day read Word Rain, which is her first book from 1969. That was how I first came to the work. And it later, when I was living in New York again, um, this is actually after Madeline, just after Madeline had passed away, I, under different circumstances, ended up going to the what had become the Reversible Destiny Foundation, which was at located in the building that they had lived in while they were both alive. And I started going through the archive there, um, which is sort of, I think, where the, the idea for this book came from. What was it like going through the archive? That can be such an intimate process. Did it feel that way? Well, so basically, I, sh I should say a little bit about what this archive is like. And, um, you know, I also want to say that anyone 
you know, you can look, the Reversible Destiny Foundation has a website and you can get in touch with them and, and anyone can have um, access to these materials who's, who's interested in research. Um, these materials were taken from um, the, the building on Houston Street, which has since been sold. And essentially, you know, after or before um, Arakawa and Ginza's deaths, they didn't really um, make preparations in relation to the materials that were in the, their house. And so the archive consists of everything basically that was there. Um, and it was placed in, in bankers' boxes. And then a record was made of where the objects came from. So essentially it's organized based on this house. And it is a very large archive. And it is an archive in which things that are part of everyday life or things which, you know, might not be artworks are sorted in with poems and, and other kinds of writing, and also an archive in which there isn't a distinction that's being made based on the time when things were created. So when I was looking at Madeline's work from the, her unpublished work from the late sixties and early seventies, you know, I would find printouts of websites like from the early two thousands in there or like Xeroxes of books from the 1980s and, you know, like letters to people about various things like shopping lists to do lists, like things that, showed the sort of <laughs> sedimentary accretions of their lives. So it's a very, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very complex archive that is being worked on a lot right now, you know, to be, to be organized and to have um, a usable finding aid. Uh, but it was definitely an experience of like sitting down with something that was very big, you know, and complex. One thing you questioned just a little bit in your introduction is, why wasn't Gins, you know, better known as a writer, especially since um, you, you, I mean, to your mind, Word Rain, her, her novel really is a, a masterpiece and is so ambitious in its, ex, in its experimentation and um, some, of, some of what it, you know, is trying to achieve. Do you maybe want to talk a little bit about that, that book in particular and, and kind of, I mean, it seems to me that Gins is at the, um, you know, at the corner of lots of different movements and styles and, and maybe more associated in the end with art than literature. And maybe, you know, her writings, uh, experimentation kind of reflects that a little bit too. So maybe just talk about, about that aspect of, of, of the novel and about her legacy. Sure. Yeah. So to explain Word Rain um, a little bit to you, an overview of the novel, if I can summarize it, and it's one of these books that's kind of unsummarizable, but I'll, I'll just, you know, take a shot. It's a story of someone who is reading a manuscript in an apartment and um, in the room next door, there's a birthday party going on. And that's, that's the whole plot of the, of the book. But what it actually is, is a kind of narrative account of reading, of the sort of phenomenology of reading. And it tries to narrate from a point of view that is, in some sense, not entirely human. It's narrating through the 
kind of like a chemical and physical environment of the page, um, but also of the room and the sort of weather of the room, the weather of reading, which is, you know, where the, the title comes from. And the speaker has a number of very strange and imaginative ways of thinking about what words are. So in other words, she doesn't see them as things that merely signify. She has this kind of like hyper synesthetic relationship to language and sees words as these energetic platforms that produce all kinds of unpredictable phenomena. And so the, the novel is about trying to describe that. And I should also say that it's, um, it's a bit of an artist book, as I, I guess you're, you know, you're pointing out, and it includes photographs of a hand that is holding the page, or a number of pages have a, an image of a photographic thumb that's sitting on the, on the page. And there's a way in which the book anticipates the reader as a kind of character. Um, and so you are already in in the book as well. It's kind of something that needs to be experienced to be fully um, explained uh, because it is really so strange. And it was published by a really interesting publisher um, named Richard Grossman, who um, took a lot of pains to produce uh, very fine books that kind of were in between different disciplinary spaces. And so it as an object, it's very rare now, but it's a, you know, a super beautiful object um, as well. Um, and, and to your question about, you know, why isn't Gins better known? This is complicated. And I, you know, I have been of multiple minds about this myself. You know, when Word Rain came out, it because it was published by by Grossman, you know, who had published people in his imprint like Ralph Nader, you know, that Word Rain was reviewed in the trade magazines. And in some sense, I don't know if it was totally under I mean, it wasn't understood. I mean, there are some sort of generous reviews where people are trying to, you know, understand what it is. But it's something that that kind of somehow didn't quite like even find its small audience, I think, when it was published. And um, because it was in this space between uh, art and literature in a certain way, I don't think that it, it it just didn't quite figure out how to circulate, I think. And so that, you know, over time, it has become something that uh, is kind of like in the way that certain books are recognized as forgotten books. So they're like unforgotten by a select set of people. It's, it's entered that, that kind of a space, but it, it kind of hasn't become attached to other sort of poetry movements in the U.S., like, for example, um, language poetry, like Gins is not, does not quite fit in, in there. And in, in any case, that wasn't really her, her social world either. Um, but I also think that later on in her life, she basically felt that the only thing that mattered was uh, the architecture. And, and she and Arakawa were, were even, you know, a bit messianic about what they were doing. And they really felt uh, driven to get people to, you know, be aware of their project because they felt that it had such significant consequences uh, for, you know, humanity on a, on a broad scale. So I think there was a way in which 
as even though, you know, when you talk to um, poets and people who are around the poetry project, um, you know, in, in the, in the aughts and, and, and teens, like they, they knew Gins and she was sort of a fixture there, but she had kind of moved on from her own work as such and was really all about the collaboration, I think, on the architecture. Something I want to ask you about, Lucy, is experiencing Gins' work and the, and the sort of affective experience of her work. I, I actually went to visit the site of Reversible Destiny during my honeymoon because my partner was so, so excited um, and <laughs> We spent a full a full day in Euro walking through the site of Reversible Destiny. I mostly spent the time eating, you know, pocky and and sort of just looking around. But um, it was like a pilgrimage for him. And there was, I mean, the experience of it is really interesting because there's the the physical experience of it, which is these odd rooms where he, there are. You're right. There's no. Um, it's not quite any right angles, there's color, some furniture is on the ground and some furniture is on the ceiling. Furniture is cut off in different places and walls appear where there shouldn't be walls. Um, but at the same time, it's like somewhat run down and it's, it kind of looks like an old amusement park. It's a really interesting experience. Have you experienced her work in this, in this way? Have you stepped into it um, or uh, walked around in it? Have you experienced this? the sort of the physical aspect of, of her uh, cultural output. I guess, are you asking me if I've been to any of the architectural yeah. sites? Yeah. 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 So yeah. I haven't, <laughs> I, so I, I lived in Japan for a little while, but I actually never went to Euro um, and I, I didn't see the park there, um, nor did I visit the lofts in Tokyo, which uh, fun fact are featured in uh, an episode of Girls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's their proudest moment, but they, they are still, you know, extant and you can stay in them, I believe. Um, and certainly you can go to Yoro. Um, I have been to the Bioscleave house, which is on Long Island. Um, and that is, as far as I understand, that's currently for sale. So if anybody has some extra cash lying around, uh, you know, you can purchase a part of history for yourself. I had a similar experience, uh, you know, of this space as as being kind of it, feeling in a way a bit abandoned. And yes, right. the old um, amusement park, you know, there's a way in which uh, the spaces are designed to be playful and there's a kind of playground quality to them because that's where, you know, we're accustomed to being encouraged to, you know, use our senses to touch surfaces and like walk over, uh, you know, uneven things and their bars and things like that. Um, you know, it's interesting because the place in, in Long Island, which is, a, it's a house that um, is, is kind of similar to the layout of the lofts in in Tokyo, but on a larger scale. And it has a central mm. kitchen and then these big open rooms coming off of it. And then there's kind of in between the kitchen and the rooms, there is this sloping floor that seems to be made out of sand or concrete and it has all these lumps on it. And so it's kind of like you're walking up a hill indoors to go to the rooms and there are, mm -hmm. you know, there are poles in the ceiling. You know, I, I think, and I, I've also heard, um, not to, 
you know, uh, talk out of school too much here, but that people often injure themselves in Yoro. And I know that like when I was in this room, I definitely felt like I need to be very careful because if I fall down, the surfaces are very hard uh, and I will hurt myself yeah. very badly. <laughs> so, you know, there's, I, I mean, I, the, yeah. a very sweet thing is that we noticed that in Euro, they actually provide little helmets for children who want to come visit. <laughs> I think that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, I needed a helmet. Yeah. So. <laughs> in your introduction, you mentioned that the way um, Gims and Urkawa designed these spaces was, and the way they thought that it, they might stave off death is that if people were, that people, they believed people were sensorily deprived most of the time. And if their sen senses were um, really stimulated, it would be like a, a life force and would, would help them, you know, never die. And I, I guess just in, in taking it back to Ginz's writing, the, that it, it's not, of course, it's experimental in, in that you don't quite know where you are and it's, um, it's challenging, but it's, but I, but I think that the, you get the sense from the way that you write about that. It, it, it's not as though it was, it was just an intellectual exercise for her, or she was just, you know, wanted to be opaque that, um, uh, I, I'm curious what you think she was after in, in writing um, something, uh, a novel like uh, Word Rain, and in, in writing texts that were very challenging, um, and, and what she was trying to, you know, if, if in the sense of this kind of upside down, the way she built these upside down spaces, do you think she was trying to do something similar with her writing in regard to language and um, perception? I don't, I mean, I don't know if, you know, if there's a, there's a kind of direct analogy, I think there are similarities and, you know, I, I've said that I, I like to resist seeing the writing as sort of like the adolescent version of the reversible destiny project. Cause I think that they're distinct and the reversible destiny project is a collaboration between Gins and Arakawa. So, you know, you also have his sensibility participating in it, but, you know, as far as, Gens's writing goes, I think you, you know, you make a good point when, you know, you sort of pushing me to say, you know, she's not just experimenting for the sake of experimenting. And I think that that's right. I include a couple of essays that I found um, in, in the archive. And in one of them, which is, is called The Fictions of My Nonfiction, Gins talks about visions that she would have. And she writes, the images were often detailed in color at times revelatory or interpretive. Sometimes they were vague, soft, and cushiony. They were not always kind to me. And she talks in this essay about how when she met Arakawa, she met someone who could help her navigate uh, her own sensorium, which was, I think, in some way, not the kind of like standard human sensorium. So there's something extra happening from her own account about how she perceived. And I, I think what she's doing, for example, in Word Rain, I think she's actually describing a, a, a mode of experience which is her own. So in other words, she's not being obtuse. She's trying to talk about something 
which is which is real and uh, perceivable for her when it comes to to reading and and thought. But I don't think that 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 is the only thing that she's doing in her writing. I think that in, you know, in the poems from the archive, the early poems from the archive, which were unpublished, which I include in the book, I think she's, you know, trying to get us to notice things about language. And she uses very simple words and very familiar words, but combines them in very strange ways. And this is also something that she does in her book from 1984, What the President Will Say and Do. And she'll often just take two words and put them together like waterfall and skin or shadow and bitten. And I think she's trying to get us to notice something about what we don't notice when we become habituated to language, which is obviously something that happens to us or many of us early on in life so that we become functional uh, within the, you know, sort of pre-existing society. There may be some connection between that kind of trying to get a reader to notice habit and uh, notice the ways in which they are accustomed to things and the ways in which they are forgetting or not noticing what is strange or what is remarkable that could be connected to some of the sort of politics and aesthetics uh, and practices that we would associate with reversible destiny. In other words, trying to get you to you know, notice your environment uh, or have to struggle to navigate your environment uh, in order to notice how easy it is for you to navigate your environment normally. But here again, I'm, I'm doing that thing where I'm, I'm turning the writing into just the precursor of the architecture, and I don't really mean to do that. But I think it's fair to also, she had these interests that kind of played out in different ways among different mediums, but um, they don't have to connect to also, you know, share some similarities and, and just be fascinating. Um, and I think that we might have to end it there. This is a, such an exciting collection, and um, I'm, I'm really glad that you came on here to talk about it with us. Well, thank you again for having me. Thank you so much, Lucy. We've been talking to Lucy Ives. She wrote the introduction. She edited a new collection of the work of Madeline Ginz. The book is called The Saddest Thing is That I've Had to Use Words, a Madeline Ginz Reader. Thanks again, Lucy. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.